Refuel with New Synergy Gasoline. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as F1 Fuels, New Synergy Gasoline has been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed, making it Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. Synergy Gasoline is engineered with seven key ingredients, including dual detergents to help keep your engine cleaner. New Synergy Gasoline, only available at Exxon and Mobil. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's E-X-X-O-N.com, or mobile.com, that's M-O-B-I-L.com, for more information. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. I have sort of a themed interview episode for you today. Two of the busiest teams at Major League Baseball's trade deadline were the New York Yankees and the Milwaukee Brewers, who are both in the midst of rebuilding efforts that have yielded a ton of minor league talent. Yankees and the Brewers were second and first, respectively, in MLB.com's post-deadline ranking of farm systems. They lead baseball with seven prospects apiece on Baseball America's mid-season top 100 list. Of course, the Brewers have been selling for a while now. The Yankees are are very much new to the experience. So we're going to talk to the two people who are orchestrating those efforts, Yankees general manager Brian Cashman and Brewers general manager David Stearns. Their teams were very much alike in what they were trying to do at the deadline, but there are a lot of contrasts too. Big market, small market, second highest payroll in baseball and lowest payroll in baseball, one of the longest tenured GMs and the youngest GM in the majors. So I'm going to talk to the two of them about what they wanted to accomplish at the deadline and how you shepherd a baseball team from where it is now to where you want it to be in the future. So first up, we are welcoming in Brian Cashman, Yankees general manager since 1998, but perhaps first time trade deadline seller. Brian, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. So it was reported that being swept by the Rays in the three days before the deadline may have helped seal the deal as far as selling was concerned. And I'm wondering whether one week or one weekend at the right point in the season can really dictate decisions that affect the franchise for years to come. And and if so, are you kind of conflicted when you're watching those games and wanting to win, but also trying to look long term? Um, you know, I don't think it moved the needle for me. I felt that, uh, you know, over a period of uh, extended period of time, our team had declared its, itself as as more fool's gold by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, again, I I think for that series might have been an exclamation point for ownership in letting them see it the more of the way I saw it and entertain different options. Uh, and so you know we had a lot of good hard objective discussions and and then slowly they you know cleared everything I recommended you know over the last uh, week you know, of the deadline. And can you give me any sense of how long the three big deals you made were in the works or or how close those three players came to going somewhere else or not going anywhere? Well, I I guess it was definitely a high possibility that no one going anywhere. You know, the the deals that we had been uh, discussing, you know, that ultimately, you know, led to official trades with Texas and and the the Cubs and um, Cleveland and Cleveland. Thank you. we had been in works for quite some time. Uh, you know, our our entire front office, you know, our pro scouting department led by Kevin Reese, our assistant general manager, Mike Fishman, uh, and you know, the analytics department headed by David Grabner. You know, uh, those guys, along with you know various people in our front office, from Dan Geist to Tim Naring to to Jim Hendry, we all were you know polarized uh, for a potential sale. So we targeted six franchises, you know, uh, to at least cross check and get more extra looks on that we felt would be aggressive and that were extremely deep. And, uh, and that started, you know, as early as June and, you know, that, that put us in a better position to, to execute deals as we move forward once we got clearance to do so. And, uh, you know, it's obviously very important and imperative, I think, to get maximum value to have competition on your players. And certainly with the relievers, with Chapman and Miller and, and with the way Carlos Beltran was performing this year, uh, we were able to, to get maximum value. And you mentioned the involvement of the analytics department. So how quantitative is this process? Are you getting recommendations based on, say, you know, expected value of the players? players you are acquiring and the players you're giving up? Or is it more of a, you know, yeah, this is worth doing, but you're not actually looking at any numbers when you're making these calls? No, we're doing everything. Uh, uh, you know, we're evaluating. We're just trying to get in real time what our projected present and future, you know, uh, 
ceilings of the players are, and that's a combination of our pro scouting assessments, and that's a combination of our analytical assessments. And, and it's, it's just try, you know, the analytical side is very, very valuable in the fact that there's certain, you know, categories that, you know, uh, that can help frame, you know, what performance really is or what the expected performance, you know, can or should be as we move forward. And, and then you collapse that with what the, uh, the scouts are seeing from the stands and then the makeup assessments you get from relationships that you have throughout the game. And, and, and that, you know, it just lines your preference list up as, as strong as possible to make sure you have the players slotted uh, as they should be and and uh, and then see if you can negotiate you know the the best deals for your franchise and you probably don't want to get into any specific players who are still on your team who came close to not being on your team but I am curious about how you decided to stop where you did were there not appealing offers out there for other veterans or did you decide that there was a certain level of talent on the 2016 roster that you weren't comfortable going below well I mean I think that the uh, you know, we moved the the pending free agents, so the the short term assets that were going to be free to go. You know, within two plus months, you know, those were going to be must moves, and then and then only then if we got what we felt was fair or above fair value prices, then we would consider moving. You know, anybody else, and uh, so that that was true in the case of Miller. Uh, it was not true in the case of others. It's just as simple as that. We had a lot of interest in Pineda. We had a lot of interest in Evaldi. We had you know, teams asking us about you know McCann and and Gardner and you know uh, and and you know amongst others and it, we just did not feel you know that what we would be interested in getting back was going to be coming into play and and it was in our best interest to retain those players not not trade those players and uh, if we you know if we were put in a position to have you know the tough decisions uh, uh, with fair value offers then I'd consider it but if we weren't then it was an easy call and so. So obviously, this isn't the first time that the Yankees have had productive players on expiring contracts. And so, you know, what are the big things that have changed in the years since guys like, say, Robinson Cano or David Robertson were in that position where you would do something differently this time around than you did in, in those cases? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think uh, we've had very honest conversation with ownership uh, in those past circumstances. And in the end, everything we do is directed by ownership's final call. And uh, so, um, obviously, they were more willing, you know, to to commit to to the moves that we just had uh, than they were in, in years gone by. Uh, we've always been honest with our assessment of our club as being, you know, we've been a playoff contender for quite some time, um, but are we really a World Series contender? And and uh, you know, that's that's the dialogue that we you know we've been able to have the last number of years. And and uh, but in this particular year, 2016, at the deadline, they allowed us to do something that in prior years uh, maybe they weren't willing to do. So talent-wise, the the Chapman trade was seen as probably the biggest coup in that you didn't give up much to get him. You got a few months of great relief, then you spin him off for better prospects than I think most people imagined you could get for a rental. And of course, this whole sequence was made possible because Chapman was, as you've described him, an asset in distress over the winter. And someone was probably bound to take advantage of that situation. But did you have any qualms about it being you? No, I had no. Uh, listen, we I took a lot of time, and you know, prior to to making that recommendation to ownership in terms of the acquisition of Chapman from Cincinnati in the winter time, I and that that meant going through reading the police report, trying. I, I you know, I guess the, the best way to frame it is the public story of what happened and and what the police report uh, stated had happened uh, were two different storylines. So um, that that's first and foremost. So I think uh, once I was able assess that, recognizing what the police report said, that there's clearly no charges that we're going to have happen from that. I felt like this was a potential buy-low opportunity that, you know, we should take advantage of, given our circumstances and everything of, the, of that nature. And uh, and and so that's that's how we approached it. You know, I knew there would be some negative press from it. Uh, but again, you know, as, as long as I, we understood exactly what, you know, appeared to have occurred, then we felt that the downtime, and, and if there was a suspension it wouldn't be long and that he was going to play Major League Baseball. The biggest thing, he was going to play Major League Baseball in 2016, period, somewhere for somebody. And as long as he was who he always has been, that he would be 
you know an asset, and uh, and we we went all in to try to acquire him to help us win and compete in 2016. And if not, uh, if it wasn't going to be good enough for us, then we would be in a position at the deadline to spin him back out prior to free agency and and hopefully benefit from that. And the guys you got back in all these trades really ran the gamut in terms of ETA and the majors. So how do you weigh the potential versus the proximity? And were you trying to target the best player available? You know the way you would in the draft, maybe or were you focusing on certain positions or areas of weakness? Well, I mean, our preference—I think our preference going in would be if we could get you know upper level starting pitching knocking on the door back, uh, that would be optimal. But I, you know, but to be honest, we actually just targeted the best deals you could possibly can, kind of like you do in the draft. Um, you know, as you notice, we're very deep in the organization, shortstop prospect wise, but that didn't prevent us from actually acquiring as the main piece in the Chapman deal, shortstop. Mm-hmm. So we wanted maximum value. Um, um, there's 25 roster spots on the club in the major league level, plus, you know, obviously the organizational depth you create with the talent you acquire or develop uh, by, you know, signing and, and drafting those players. And so we just felt it was in our best interest to, to not pass on maybe better or higher ceiling players that happen to be in a multiple positions that you have depth in. It's just, let's just get the best value players, period, and let the death settle and and, uh, and let them compete their way to the big leagues and, and see where it takes us. So we, we chose the approach of, of just getting the best deals, not you know, trying to go for a specific pl- type of player position. And so for the last three years, Baseball America has had you guys ranked 17th or 18th in the, the farm system rankings, and that's as recently as this February. And after the deadline, with all the prospects you acquired, the updated ranking at MLB.com has you at second overall. And so when you add that many prospects in such a short span of time, how do you create room for them? And and how does it impact the players who are already in your system? Well, we have 10 minor league affiliates. We felt we were always higher than 18 anyway. Uh, So I don't think you can actually jump from 18 to two uh, unless you're really acknowledging. It's probably an acknowledgement that we actually are higher than than they actually had us. Uh, And, you know, uh, I think that the combination of the talent we just brought in, uh, joining the talent we already possessed does put us in the top, you know, three, you know, uh, systems in the game. I'd be hard pressed to say that there might there might not be a better system, you know, from top to bottom in the game than ours. But but it's a subjective decision making process. It doesn't necessarily matter. All that matters is if these guys, you know, uh, as many of these guys you possibly can have reach their ceilings. That would be obviously Nirvana. And uh, listen, there, you know, with our with our number of affiliates, we have no problem finding places for them. And the and the great uh, aspect of the the deals I think for us that we just made uh, were most of these players are not Rule Five eligible. So, you know, I'm not going to have a roster jam created by this uh, additional high-end influx of talent, uh, at least in the near term, uh, they can go plug and play and and uh, there's no pressure all of a sudden to trade other guys away to make room for them this winter because the 40-man roster is going to be overexposed. And, you know, that's obviously a valuable issue as well. And I know you've made some changes on the player development side in, in recent years, and it's always been sort of hard, at least from the outside, to evaluate whether the Yankees were good at player development or not, because, of course, they weren't getting to draft early on and they were often trading prospects instead of bringing them to the majors. So it was hard to say whether, you know, they were doing a bad job of developing prospects or whether it was just the the circumstances conspiring against them. So now that you have this wealth of talent, how do you evaluate whether you are making the most of it? I, I think we have one of the best uh, developmental systems in the game. Uh, that's what every organization aspires to. I think we have uh, the right people in place, uh, you know, from director to, to managers and, and coaches and coordinators. And I think we have given those individuals some, you know, high-end talent to play with, and uh, and they will hold them accountable. They will direct them in the right way, and they're not afraid to discipline them when, when and if it's necessary. I think they just plan on teaching them, you know, how to go about their business as a professional in the right way. And, and uh, you know, I'd match our personnel up with anybody's personnel. And I think uh, over time, you'll see a lot of high-end production coming out of our system. That takes time. And until it, you know, shows itself, you know, I think people will have an opportunity to, to, to comment, you know, on that. Uh, but once it does show itself as productive on, on a series of talented players coming through and then and making their way and at the big league level, then I think the narrative changes rather quickly. And but that narrative's already changed for as far as we're concerned. I think our system is is strong with the personnel, both on the playing and coaching side. And you know, if you're on a not small market team, so this is not a team that you know has to worry about its existence year to year. How do you kind of weigh the the benefits of getting that? 
cheap talent from within is the the greatest benefit just being able to then take your savings and apply it to free agents who you might not have been able to afford otherwise? Or are there sort of other less visible areas where that money that you save by developing your own stars can be applied elsewhere? Well, first and foremost, I think, you know, uh, there's been so many changes in the game over the last decade. Uh, and, you know, with the new basic agreements, you know, that's been negotiated prior to Rob Manford, you know, under the Bud Selig regime, you know, to create competitive balance, it's completely changed the chessboard that George Steinbrenner was playing under. You know, obviously the Yankees could go to free agency and pull down any player they wanted. We can, we can go, you know, make a trade for somebody else's talented, expensive player with players from our system. Like I remember doing in 98, we traded you know, our number one pick from the University of Maryland, Derek Milton, to, plus others to, to Minnesota for, for Chuck Knobloch so we could plug and play a leadoff hitter and a, and a, a second baseman ready to go. And, and that cost us talent and, and clearly taking on money from another club. And then I replaced Milton, who was our sixth starter sitting at AAA. I went to the international market and pulled down El Duque to replace what we lost to Milton for $6.6 million, which at the time was a lot of money. Um, those days are gone because you're capped internationally you're capped domestically. I remember domestically, we could do a lot of different things if we so chose, uh, whether we're picking names right or wrong. But we spent a lot of money on, on Andrew Brackman, who we thought was going to be good. Didn't work out. We spent a lot of money on, on Deion Sanders. You know, uh, I've been here since 86. We popped Deion Sanders, uh, who was a two-sport athlete, and, and paid him a lot of money, and, and knowing he was also going to play football. And all those days are gone because your amateur side is on the domestic side is capped. Your international side is capped. You know, there's penalties on our major league, you know, side where when all these new basic agreements came in, you know, we've been in the tax penalty the entire time. So the long and the short of it is if we have alternative cheap talent ready to go, uh, like you're going to start seeing, it's going to allow us to have a contracts expire, get us under and out of the penalty, uh, provide youth uh, that could be just as productive, if not more productive than, you know, the veterans at the back end. And it'll give us an array of choices that, you know, we have not had. As you all know, we've just went through a winter where we did not sign one major league free agent. And, you know, all these things are pointing towards, you know, how the basic agreements have worked to slow the old way of the Yankee business down and created a whole new chessboard, you know, of play that, you know, we are adapting to slowly, but surely. And I've seen some people after the trades constructing theoretical 2019 Yankees rosters in which, you know, of course, every prospect pans out and every 2018 free agent ends up in pinstripes. And it's just sort of a fun exercise. But, you know, are you thinking that far ahead, either for planning purposes or just for fun, you know, kind of envisioning the blue sky scenario where these prospects pan out and you dip below the luxury tax threshold and all of this other talent becomes available? To what extent are you looking that far in the future? Uh, no, we don't play that far in advance. Um, we just simply uh, go about our business in the, in the in the present term, trying to you know develop our players and, you know, get the best out of our major and uh, player development program. And and, uh, you know, that's too far in advance because a lot of things can happen. Injuries, you know, trade opportunities, free agents, you know, that that whole game, you know, in 2018 and beyond could be, you know, I, who, who's to say I'll even be here, you know, uh, making those type of decisions. So it does not make any sense to, you know, dream ahead, I guess, so to speak. And you were there the last time that the Yankees had a great crop of young talent and you saw what happened. It set up decades of success and so I'm wondering, say this new crop of prospects pans out and, and sets up a new successful Yankees team, how do you ensure that it keeps going, that you don't end up in a situation where you're going to sell again? Not that it would be the worst thing if it's, you know, two decades down the road, but how do you make sure that it's sustainable? Are you planning to take a harder stance against big long-term contracts that sometimes don't pan out? Is there anything that you're planning to do differently now that you have this this new crop, this new generation? Well, I don't think this new crop has just been instant. You know, this has been something we've made some adjustments in our development program and about how we acquire talent and how we assess talent. We've created you know, a performance science department. We've created an analytical department about a decade old. And, um, and so I think we've changed and evolved and grown as a franchise and organization, you know, with the effort of trying to sustain success and make sure that we're, we're ha you know, making more efficient decisions. And the bottom line is the best business practices is, is to constantly every decision be well thought out and designed to improve the present or the future, depending on, you know, the decision at hand. 
And if we can string enough of those quality decisions together uh, on a yearly basis, we'll be better served for it. And so the goal as any general manager would be to be the best you can be in the present and, and have a lot of hope for the future. And that's just, that, again, how we'll walk that path. And, and you did touch upon it. I was the assistant farm director back in the day. I was here when Brian Sabian with Bill Livesey uh, built this farm system that acquired all that talent they call the core four, but it was so much more than just that. And then Gene Michael came in. I was the assistant GM for four years under him, and he came in to finish it off. And then Bob Watson won it in 96 as, a, as the general manager. I was his assistant GM for two years, and then obviously I took over in 98 to, to keep it going. And, and there's been a lot of great players have come and gone, a lot of young talent. We utilize the trade, free agents we've pulled down. And, and so it would be business as usual that I think every general manager goes about it where they utilize the, the amateur markets, both international and domestic, and the, and the free agent market when they need to. And we'll approach everything the same way you know that we can, but it's certainly easier if you have internal choices to go with rather than having to go to that free agent market because you know usually that's that's a huge benefit to the players and it's going to blow your payroll and we've lived through that and we've benefited from that and we've been slowed down because of it at the same time. And you mentioned that you've been there for 30 years and you know when you started the average professional life expectancy of a Yankees executive was not very long and yet you have managed to to stay in that position this long and I'm curious about kind of what the the greatest survival skills for a, a general manager are. I would imagine that winning is the main thing, but is there anything about sort of, you know, interacting with ownership or with the press or with your front office that you've learned over time that is kind of the key to longevity in a market and a team that historically hasn't had that kind of continuity? I think winning, first and foremost. Um, you know, we have been a playoff contending team for a long, long time. Um, you know, I have a job description as general manager and I, I execute it to the best of my abilities. I don't deviate from it. I don't go off of script of what that job description actually is and I honor it. I honor it with brutal honesty and objectivity to the best of my abilities with my owner, with our players, with our management team, with our uh, coaching staff and uh, and all the people I work with. And um, so far it's worked long enough to allow me to stay here as collectively we uh, have done a lot of good things. At times we haven't done as good as we could have done. Uh, you try to learn and grow and improve from that. So listen, I feel uh you know, we and I are open-minded to not feeling we're the sharpest knives in the drawer, that uh, that there's always, you know, something out there that can help us be better. And, and it's my job to gravitate and find those things and, you know, adopt them for our franchises so we can be better in the present and the future. And so uh, short and simple, I try to hire people smarter than me to help guide me and uh, and acquire as much talent as we possibly can to, to keep us, obviously, as a contender. And, you know, that's all I'll ever try to do, whether it's here or anywhere else. And, you know, since you took over as GM in 98, no team has won more games. So it's hard to argue that you could have had as much or more success anywhere else. But I think outside observers have always, when trying to evaluate your work, they've always kind of wondered what a Brian Cashman team would look like, you know, in a smaller market or with a lower payroll or with a more hands-off ownership. And, you know, this year you you kind of got a chance to to make the sort of move that you haven't been able to make or, you know, haven't had to make for, for most of your time in New York. And do you ever get curious about what it would be like to do what you do for a team that doesn't have the advantages, but also the challenges of this particular job? No, I don't daydream that way. I feel very comfortable and confident in, my, in, in our abilities as a management team to, you know, whether it's signing a six-year minor league free agent, whether it's drafting, whether it's developing, whether it's, you know, going in and pulling down the big free agent whether it's making trades, whether it's at the deadlines now as a seller or as a buyer. Um, I've lived all of that. Uh, I've learned from everything we've ever done, and I feel it's made us made me better at what I do and how I go about it. And, you know, and again, when you have a chance to, to, to continue to grow and evolve and, and learn from the past to try to make the, the, the future better, uh, you know, I think it's, it, listen, I just feel like I've, uh, I'm very comfortable about how this game operates, understanding it, building relationships, being honest with our personnel uh, and creating, you know, a, a path and a philosophy of, of where we are, who we are and where we're going. And, and uh, just like anybody who's running a management team or a company, 
company, whether it's a sports or or just industry, you know, I don't think it's very that much different. Uh, it's just to be very clear, very concise, uh, create an action plan, and try to execute it, and be very articulate uh, with your fan base through the media, uh, as well as educating your players and your coaches about you know what your goals and expectations are. It's it's simple when you put it that way. It's obviously a lot more complicated executing it, but that's that's reality. All right. And last question, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of guys that you just acquired that you were very happy to get. I'm sure it's a lot more fun for you to look at the daily reports from the farm system when you have some of these names in them as opposed to some of the names who were there in, in past years. Was there one guy you got and, you know, not necessarily even the highest ceiling guy, maybe it's someone who's, you know, going to be a role player or something, but you got him thrown into a deal that you didn't think you could get him thrown into. Was there a particular player that really made you pump your fist or, or made you especially excited to, to see how he works out? Well, I guess I'd have more track record with Gleyber Torres because I felt back in 2013, uh, he was the best international free agent available. Uh, and we didn't, we did not get him secured the Cubs moved on him ahead of the entire industry and wrapped him up and uh, and you know they so they benefited from getting him so I remember having in real time you know conversations with their international department about you know how would you know and why did we you know get on this guy sooner than later and you know, they were on him they just couldn't get to him because the Cubs, Cubs did a better job at it and so I've been following his career since then and and as he's grown and gotten even better so he was definitely a, a target for me you don't let go of guys that you follow as, as an amateur and and now uh, I'm happy to have him in the fold so I have a little bit longer ties with him you know but that doesn't mean he is more exciting to me than any of the other guys I just have a longer history uh, of, of one we had a swing and miss on him as an amateur uh, so now you know some these other guys the Sheffields the Frasers we never had any access to those guys they were coming off the board in the draft well before we were picking and so those guys weren't realistic options for us but uh, but Torres was but uh, but now he's ours and, and I'm happy for that all right well thank you very much for your time. We got through a whole interview without one question about A-Rod. Hopefully that was a nice change of pace for you. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, before we talk about Brewers GM David Stearns, let's pause for a moment to talk about our sponsor. Introducing, or really reintroducing, new Synergy Gasoline, Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. It's been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed. Developed in the same Exxon Mobil research lab as their F1 fuels, new Synergy Gasoline is engineered by chemists who understand the science behind keeping engines clean and know the complexities of modern car technology. That's why it's formulated to keep modern fuel injectors clean while still working great on older engines. New Synergy is also engineered with seven key ingredients, each with its own unique function to help make Synergy Exxon and Mobil's best fuel ever, including dual detergents to help clean your engine, and corrosion inhibitor, which is designed to help prevent rust from threatening your engine and its performance. Refuel with New Synergy Gasoline today. Only available at the almost 11,000 Exxon and Mobil stations across the U.S., Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's E-X-X-O-N.com, or mobile.com, that's M-O-B-I-L.com, for more information. All right, so we're back with our next guest, who has not held a GM job quite as long as Brian Cashman, but has been just as busy, if not busier, rebuilding his roster over the 11 months or so since he was hired. It's Milwaukee Brewers GM David Stearns. David, thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me. So before we get into the rebuilding stuff, this is a little off topic, but since it's fairly fresh in your mind and I rarely hear it asked, how do you interview for a GM job? Take me through the the few days (laughs) and nights leading up to that meeting or or series of meetings. Are you making PowerPoints? Are you getting someone to role play as Mark Adonacio? Are you putting prospects on flashcards and asking someone to quiz you? How do you prepare for something like that? I'll tell you, it happened pretty uh, pretty fast for me. I was obviously uh, working for the Astros at the time, and we were going through what was a pretty special season, getting into the thick of the, the playoff hunt in mid-September, early September, and was really just focused on uh, the Astros and, and everything we had to do. And uh, Jeff Luno uh, walked into my office one day and, and told me that uh, the Milwaukee Brewers had requested permission to, to interview me for their GM job, which obviously that in and of itself was, was flattering and, and humbling. And um, he told me that they were prepared to, to grant permission if it was something I wanted to pursue. And really from then on, it was a, a whirlwind 10-day stretch through a couple of different interview rounds. I didn't have a ton of time to prepare for the initial interview, so just did everything I could. I was pretty familiar with um, the brewer system and, and the brewer structure from some of the work I had done uh, for the for that trade deadline that year. And so 
came into the the interview process with a, a good degree of, of knowledge of what was going on in Milwaukee at the time, and then just was very upfront and honest with with what I thought needed to be done going forward. And I was very fortunate that uh, that Mark Adonacio and the rest of the interview committee agreed with me. And so you served as Jeff's assistant GM in Houston for almost three years, and you got there just in time for the low point in 2013, and then you were there for the start of the renaissance last season. So. You got to be the second in command for one pretty successful rebuilding process. And what lessons did you draw from that experience? What did you take away from that that you've tried to apply now that you're the one running the show? There's a lot I took away from the Houston experience. Probably the the most important lesson I learned was the need for genuine and constant alignment from ownership through the front office and down to the field staff. And Jeff and Jim Crane and AJ Hinch uh, were able to create that in Houston. Uh, and, and once that sense of uh, camaraderie and unity developed there, uh, really the, the entire organization took off. And uh, that's what we are aiming to build here. I think we're off to a good start. But there are so few organizations that have that, that true genuine alignment. And when you have it, it opens up so many possibilities and allows you to be creative on a number of different fronts. And I think if you look at the organizations around baseball that have managed to create that synergy uh, through ownership, the front office and the field staff, they're generally some of the, the best well-run and most effective organizations in the game. And a lot of GMs, when they take over, they will make changes in those areas, which makes sense. You bring in your own people you know you can work with, and you did make some changes with the field staff, but you stuck with Craig Council instead of you know insisting on, on having your own person installed in that job. So what was it about Craig that gave you the confidence that you two could work as well together as someone you know you had brought in from outside. Craig's a really uniquely qualified person for this particular job. He he grew up in the area. Um, he obviously played for the Brewers. He worked in the front office here, and he's had so many different experiences within the game, from uh, being a senior sign and working his way up through the minor leagues to being a bench player to being a starter to being an NLCS MVP and a two-time world champion. Uh, to then in the back end of his career being a bench player again and then ultimately working in the front office. So he he knows everything that goes on in an entire baseball operations department. We're able to have very candid conversations with each other where uh, I feel that he understands uh, my perspective and, and I certainly do my best to understand his perspective. And to the extent we have uh, disagreements on topics, we're able to talk through them and, and come to the best outcome for the organization. So He's, uh, as I was going through the interview process, I obviously did my research uh, on Craig. We had, had not known each other previously, but everything I had heard was positive. And then getting to know him over this, those first couple months just reinforced what I had heard prior to taking the job. Okay. So if there's one single pivotal decision you've faced this season, it's probably what to do with Jonathan Lucroy and when to do it. You knew that you had a, a very valuable asset and your decision to hold on to him until he rebounded instead of trading him over the winter worked out extremely well. So what was your level of confidence over the offseason that he was going to bounce back to the degree that he did? And how close did you come to pulling the trigger on an earlier trade when he was coming off that down year and his value was not at its peak? Well, I knew going into the offseason that we didn't want to trade a depressed asset. So if the industry was going to value Jonathan Lucroy based on his 2015 performance rather than what he had done prior to that throughout his career, um, we weren't going to find a match. There were some discussions in some clubs throughout the offseason that made aggressive offers for us, a couple that, that certainly got us thinking, but ultimately nothing that, that got us over the hump to actually move him. As I got to know Jonathan through the offseason and into spring training, it became pretty clear to me that he's a, a motivated guy a guy who works really hard, and as long as his health held up, he was going to have a really productive year, um, which would be good for our organization and, and potentially for our ability to, to move him for a great degree of value uh, mid-season or after the season. So we, we probably didn't come uh, exceptionally close in the offseason. We certainly had a, a number of discussions, but nothing that, that got us over the edge. And, and then as, uh, as he began his, his uh, strong campaign this year, obviously the, the market expanded a little bit and, and we were able to ultimately pull something off at the deadline this year. And how does a player's public statement affect your ability to deal him? He stopped short of, of demanding a trade, but he made it pretty clear that he'd like to play for a contender. And I wonder whether that helped or hindered your, your attempts to trade him. You know, did, did that make other teams think, oh, there's blood in the water. These guys will be motivated to move him. We could get him on the cheap. Or are they thinking, well, okay, he's available and, and you know, having him come out and 
make those comments, just maybe made other teams contact you and saved you some trouble. Yeah, I only think it hurts you if you allow it allow it to hurt you. I understood what Jonathan was saying. He, he said the same thing to me in private that he ultimately said publicly, which was that he wanted to play for a winner. Uh, and and um, at the time, he didn't perceive the roster that we were putting together here in Milwaukee as something that was going to um, compete in the short term. And uh, he voiced that opinion. And uh, I certainly respect his desire to want to compete year in and year out and, and want to win a world championships. Obviously, that's that's why we all do this. And that's what we're aiming towards. Uh, I don't think it necessarily changed the construct of our negotiations with any other teams. And then certainly once the season started and, and he played well, I don't think it had any bearing at all. And then how did the no trade clause complicate the mechanics of your trade talks? You must have spent a lot of time talking to Cleveland, lining up that package and knowing that the deal might evaporate when it went to Jonathan for his approval and then having to have other options lined up at the same time. There must have been a, a lot of balls in the air. There were a lot of balls in the air, and that that's normal for any trade deadline discussion. In this case, obviously, we had the, the added hurdle of a no trade to Cleveland. We had done our due diligence prior to um, engaging to Cleveland and then throughout that process to, to make sure that Cleveland was um, at least a possibility. We, uh, we, we had gotten indications that it was a possibility, but ultimately, Jonathan and his uh, representative decided that, that wasn't the best place for him, and that's certainly his... Uh, certainly his right. Really, I think the only way it, it, it changed our initial negotiation was uh, it forced us to accelerate things with Cleveland to make sure uh, that we got any package with them done with a reasonable enough time to allow us to engage other clubs should Jonathan ultimately decide that that wasn't uh, where he wanted to go. And Cleveland was on board with that. We were able to, to agree on a package um, well ahead of the deadline. Uh, then obviously Jonathan made his decision and, and we re-engaged some other clubs. So there's a perception, I think, in the wake of the Cubs' success and the Astros' success, you know, it's tempting to believe that rebuilding your team is just sort of an automatic process. You trade your veterans, you acquire a bunch of prospects, you let them stew and simmer for a few years, and then suddenly you're good again. So I think, you know, there are many pitfalls and places where that can go wrong and, and you can be bad for a few years and then never really come out the other side. So where do you think the potential places for a, a rebuild to run off the rails are? Where can you go wrong while trying to put this sort of process in place? There, in any strategy, I think there are a number of places you can you can go off the rails. In baseball, and, and particularly with ours, it starts with player evaluation. And we need to make sure we're evaluating players properly, that we're looking for the right skills and the right attributes uh, in, in the players we acquire. And secondly, we, we need to make sure we stay on strategy. And that's something that I, I talk a lot about to our group to make sure that every decision we make is executing against our strategy and is aligned with, with our overall organizational goals. And sometimes that puts us in uncomfortable places. But if, if we continue to make fact-based and intelligently minded decisions uh, that, that are geared towards our ultimate strategy, I have a lot of confidence that, that it'll pay off and that we'll, we'll get a competitive team back here in Milwaukee that can compete in this division year in and year out. But it's no sure thing, and I think you're right to point that out. There have been a couple of clubs that have had uh, a lot of success stockpiling some young talent in recent years, but those clubs are very well run, very well managed, and, and have, have done it the right way. I think if we look back in history, we can also find clubs that um, have had struggles uh, going through this young talent stockpile stage and we certainly are, are aiming to uh, to accelerate it as fast as possible, and I think the, the Astros and Cubs did a very good job doing just that. And do you believe that it's feasible to do that without bottoming out to the extent that those teams did? You know, the 2016 Brewers are about to match the 2013 Astros win total, and we're here in early August. So if this is as bad as things get, then I think Brewers fans would have to be pretty pleased with that. It certainly helps if you go all the way and you strip all of the talent off of your roster and you get the top draft pick, then maybe that puts you a little closer toward your ultimate goal. But is it possible to split the difference and you straddle that line and put a semi-competitive product on the field while arriving at the same ultimate goal? We're, we're certainly attempting to do that. And I do think it's possible. I think every situation is a little bit different and, and unique. The ability to uh, maintain a competitive team at the major league level, uh, a team that's representative of major league talent is important to us. We've been able to do that this year. We've been competitive. We've played our division uh, very tough. We've played very well at home. Um, those are all things on which we can build uh, and, and things that we're proud of. 
and so we're looking to keep that going in in future years and part of that is acquiring uh, younger players who can compete at the major leagues right now and also have the ability to help us in the future and so we've been able to do that in a couple of different spots guys who have uh, helped stabilize our major league team and, and provided us lifts and uh, and that's part of the strategy as well it's not just acquiring guys that you think can help you three four five years down the road it's, it's acquiring guys that we think can help now but also may be here three four five years down the road and in 2014, Baseball America ranked the Brewers farm system 29th in baseball, and it's improved to the point very quickly that MLB.com is now assessing it as the best in baseball. And in your case, of course, the rebuilding process had already begun by the time you got to Milwaukee last September. Doug Melvin had already kicked it off with some trades before that. So when you inherited his work, what was sort of your perception of what the weakness was or what the strengths were, where you needed to supplement what he had already done as far as infusing talent into the farm system? I think my perception was that it was an improving system that had made um, meaningful strides over the previous calendar year with a good draft and then some intelligent activity at the trade deadline. And really, I, I didn't look at it as we needed to fill in here or we had a surplus in this area. I looked at it as we just need to continue to add as much young talent and as, as strong uh, a base of young talent as we possibly could throughout the entire organization. I'm a big believer that you, you don't just look to stockpile talent at a certain level and then have it all reach the major leagues at once, and then that's your group for the next six years. I think we need waves of young talent coming, and that's been our goal, to make sure that we have depth throughout the entire system so that we continually have waves of major league quality young talent uh, approaching the major league level. And hopefully we get to the point where we have an abundance of it and, and we can begin to trade from that stockpile. But uh, until we get to that point, those are guys that, that we're looking to contribute and, and compete at the major league level for us. And there's been so much focus on the draft when it comes to rebuilding teams and the ways in which fielding a non-competitive team in the short term can improve your draft position and, and thus your long-term outlook. But I wonder whether that's been to the exclusion of other avenues of acquiring talent because, you know, you really remade the roster in your first offseason. You turned over, I think, half of the 40-man roster that was there at the end of the 2015 season, and you really explored all the ways in which you can acquire talent. You've made a lot of trades. You've put in waiver claims. You've picked up Rule 5 guys. You've signed some free agents. And it seems like, you know, with one trade of someone like Jonathan Lucroy, you can acquire as much talent as you might get in a single year's draft because, you know, the draft can be so unpredictable. So when you sort of set out to do this, were you thinking the draft is really where we're going to make our mark? Or were you thinking that's a part of it, that's a component, but you've got international spending, you've got rating other teams' farm systems, you've got picking up free talent. How does the draft sort of stack up to these other ways of infusing talent? The, the draft is a piece of the puzzle, but it's certainly not the entirety of the puzzle or even the majority of the puzzle. Um, for us to compete here um, in this market, in this division, we need to be good at all of the above. We need to be really good at pro scouting so that we can claim guys like Junior Guerra. Uh, we need to be really good from an analytics perspective so that maybe we can identify some undervalued assets at, at back ends of trades with other organizations. And we need to be smart in our negotiations as we work with other clubs um, to try to get the best possible packages for, for some of our premium players um, who we've dealt over the past uh, nine, 10 months. So it, it's an all of the above type uh, approach. And for us to get to where we need to be, we need to be good at all of the, in all of those areas. And the nice thing about the draft is that you know it's going to be there. Uh, and you, you know that every June you're going to have the ability to acquire high impact young talent and bring it into your organization. Whereas sometimes those other avenues, uh, you don't know when they're going to show up. You don't know when you're going to have the ability to trade uh, a player for t other top prospects. You don't know when that, uh, that right waiver claim is going to be out there who can immediately impact your 25-man roster. But you know the draft is always going to be there. And so that's why there's, there's such an emphasis on getting the draft right. But we try to take the, the approach that every single acquisition is important. 
and uh, and we never know which one is going to be the one that that ultimately makes a, a legitimate impact on our major league team. It seems like you've targeted a bunch of guys who have sort of been ranked prospects at times in the past and maybe have slipped down those rankings or have lost a little bit of their luster or have been blocked in whatever organization they were in before, you know, guys like Garen Cicchini or Reimer Liriano or Jonathan VR, who's worked out incredibly well for you this year. So was that a conscious strategy? Were you looking for change of scenery candidates or, or guys who they'd kind of worn out their welcome to a certain extent in their organization, but you thought there was still talent there? And and if so, what's the profile of someone who would fit that mold? Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily a strategy of, of looking for former top prospects who have, who have slid down lists. It's it's more a recognition that it's it's really tough to succeed in the major league level at the front end of your career. And often guys come up and they struggle and they head back down to the minor leagues or they end up in bench roles. And the underlying talent level has remained the same. It's just that for whatever reason, the situation they're in, they're probably not getting the same level of attention or playing time than they, that they once did. And so we have sought out some of those guys, clearly not, not all of them, but there were certain guys out there that we thought had still intriguing underlying skill sets. And we're willing to take uh, calculated risks on. And as you mentioned, Jonathan VR has, has worked out as one of those guys. But it's really a recognition that a lot of these guys who, who are on these prospect lists break into the major leagues at such an early age, such a young age, um, when a lot of their former teammates are still in, in double A. And it's really tough to do that. It's really tough to compete in the major leagues at 21, 22, 23 years old. And so sometimes as an industry, we get uh, a little bit too down on those players when they don't turn into quality major leaguers uh, immediately, even when the underlying skill set is still very strong. And what sort of information advantage does a team have when it comes to its own players? I know there's been some public research that's suggested that players that teams hold on to tend to age better or do better in the long term than players that teams trade maybe at an early age, which would suggest that teams know their players pretty well because of their familiarity and their experience with them. They might know something that other teams don't. And yet when you're a seller at the deadline, you are only acquiring players that other teams are willing to give up. And in some cases, they might not want to give those players up, but still they're willing to part with them. And you know, how do you try to determine as you're making these trades that there's not something that you don't know, you're not missing something, there's no reason why these players are out there for you to acquire? That's where It's where your pro scouting staff becomes so important to the overall operation. Those guys are our, our eyes and ears um, out in the rest of the industry. Obviously, we do our, our best from here in Milwaukee to, to network and try to get a sense for what's going on with various players, but it's really our scouts in the field at the ballparks every day who can give us the best insight. And there's no question there, there's information asymmetry between a, a club when you're talking about one of your own players or, or someone else's player. We know our players, we think a little bit better than the rest of the industry. And I imagine the other 29 clubs would feel the same way about their own players. So we're cognizant of that. And, and the best way we can account for that is doing our best from a pro scouting process to, to acquire as much and as thorough information as we possibly can. And, you know, you have sort of a reputation as an analytics-friendly GM, which at this point, you know, there's no such thing as an analytics-unfriendly GM, really. And even the GMs who have that reputation are perfectly friendly to other ways of player evaluation, as your last statement just suggested. So, how do you combine what your scouts and your stat people are telling you? Have you found a way to turn scouting reports into useful data that you can then synthesize with whatever the numbers are telling you and form some kind of combined projection? Is it that well integrated or is it two separate opinions from these two different camps that you are sort of trying to synthesize in your own mind? It's probably a combination of, of both at this point. I imagine that's that's the way most teams most teams approach it. At the end of the day, all information can be turned into data, and figuring out what the right questions to ask is a really important part of pro scouting and gathering the right information. At the same time, we've got a lot of guys who are really experienced um, in the game watching baseball, and sometimes all of that information and all that instinct doesn't necessarily translate to a report or to numbers. And so we, we try to make sure that we're getting contextual information and not just data from those guys as well. And that's, that certainly has proven very useful 
for me to understand the the why of why they're grading someone in a particular way and not just um, what the grades are. So clearly there are inputs that come from pro scouting reports that we can assimilate with the rest of our data um, that can help create some level of objective uh, projections, but it's also very helpful to, to hear the scouts take and to, to listen to the context behind some of those grades. And I know that the Brewers, at least reportedly, have been studying players' biomechanics for quite some time and focusing on that with pitchers. And if you're acquiring someone from another organization, you don't necessarily have that information at your command, which you might for your own prospects. So if you are acquiring someone like Luis Ortiz, for instance, or another pitcher who maybe has had some injury problems in the past, how do you satisfy yourself without that additional data that, you know, there's no really, there's no red flag that would make you not want to do the deal? Is it something that at this point, the eye test and having an experienced scout evaluate someone's delivery is just as good as having them hooked up to a bunch of wires and sensors in a lab? It's probably a combination of a number of factors. I think the first is, is the eye test, having your scouts at the ballpark, having um, an understanding of, of what we as an organization value as strong mechanics, um, and then having a scout give you their opinions on, on the mechanics or, or the physical structure of, of the pitcher. There's also what the scout is hearing in the ballpark, whether the pitcher is complaining of anything, whether he's hurt. There's uh, video analysis that we can do that, that sometimes can prove helpful in, in, uh, in looking for various things in, in a pitcher's uh, mechanical movements. And then ultimately, if you get close on a trade, there's a medical review. Um, and that's an important step in the process as well to get an understanding of, of what injuries or treatments, if any, uh, a particular player is having on a regular basis. Is there anything that you're trying or, or thinking of implementing at the minor league level to improve the player development process, whether it's nutrition for minor leaguers or conditions that they're playing under coaching techniques or ways that they're used in games? Is there anything that you're trying or thinking of trying to maximize the, the value that you get out of this crop of prospects you've acquired? Probably all of the above. Um, everything you've just mentioned are, are things that we've talked about over the last year. Um, some of them have, have been uh, in place even before I got here. And, and then there are some new techniques that we've implemented uh, since I got here. But how, how you develop a player is equally important as to how you acquire a player. There's probably less science to the development of players. Uh, than there is to the acquisition process at this point. Uh, I think every club is is looking for the best developmental techniques, and it does stretch from health to nutrition to coaching techniques to um, field conditions and and uh, and everything else that we can put into the equation. So we're emphasizing all of those areas and and working to uh, to be the best we can be uh, across the spectrum of development. Okay, and so last thing, I'll I'll just give you a chance to plug a prospect you're particularly excited about. Was there someone you got at the deadline that? You know, you were especially excited to get in the deal, not necessarily the highest ceiling person you acquired, but just someone you have a good feeling about, someone you're looking forward to, someone you weren't sure you were able to get included in one of the packages you pulled off. Well, I think if you look at the four players we were able to acquire on deadline day, Phil Bickford, um, Andrew Susak, Lewis Brinson, and Luis Ortiz, they're, they're all fairly high profile names at this point. So I don't, I don't know that I can point to an under the radar uh, name among that group, but we're certainly pleased to have to have all of them. I think when you look at a guy like Lewis Brinson, you're able to really dream on someone like that as a potential five-tool high upside outfielder who can play center field, hit for power, and run. And uh, those players are tough to tough to acquire, and uh, and we're certainly happy to have him. He's got some work to do. I think he knows that, but he's off to a good start in AAA for us, and and we're looking forward to getting him to the big leagues. Uh, at some point over the next couple of years, and will, he'll be fun to uh, he'll be fun to watch when he gets here. All right. Well, I appreciate your time and all the answers, David Stearns. Thank you for coming on. All right. Thanks, Ben. All right. So that'll do it for today. Look out for a new episode of the Ringer MLB Show later this week. And I will leave you with what I heard over the phone while I was on hold with the Brewers waiting to talk to David Stearns, a Bob Euchre call that something tells me might need to be replaced sometime soon. Thanks for listening. The pitch. Swing and a drive to left and deep.
Hey, this is Chris Ryan from The Watch. This week, we talked about the way that NBC is broadcasting the Olympics across various platforms. We also checked in on the night of and Mr. Robot, and at the end, talked about Frank Ocean's non-surprise, non-album release. You can subscribe to The Watch on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.